You're listening to Radio Free Satan. Enjoy the show. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world. And I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It is April 1st. April Fool's Day. Huh. I got a great show for you this week. Let's talk about some of the other things I have going on here. I have Running Contest uh, partnering up with Gyps Fulvis for the release of his new album coming out April 13th called Invocations. I got an advanced copy of this and... It's very good. If you enjoyed what he put out with Nocturnes for Nightmares last year, you're going to appreciate this album entirely. Uh, I mean, from the very first track, and we're going to be talking about this in the future, to the very last track, uh, it is powerful and cathartic, appropriately. So, uh, look forward to that. But, like I mentioned, this is a contest, and a lot of you have already entered. Thank you so much for those who have but I know there's a lot more out there. And look, there's only a handful of people who have gotten in on this contest, and I got two copies to give out for free from the randomly selected entries. So if you want to be one of those lucky winners, you have a better chance at winning a free copy of Gyps Fulvis' new album than you had at winning that $600 million uh, lottery the other day. So... You know what, if you were excited about that, you should be really excited about this. <laughs> because, yeah, $600 million might have been nice, but good music lasts forever. Money goes away. <laughs> and if the world really does end in 2012, which it doesn't, but let's just start, you know, for, for fun. If it ends in 2012, then, uh, you know, money's going to be worthless. But you could have been enjoying some really great music. <laughs> so... Shoot me an email at info at 9centspodcast.com to be entered for your chance to win. Um, really great artist, Gyps Fulvis, uh, true gentleman. He's been a friend of the show for a long time, and we're going to be having an interview coming up with him really soon. So look forward to that. Also coming, and I mentioned this last week, and I'm going to keep hammering on it, not every week, but, you know, every once in a while, about the Greater Magic episode in October. And, uh, yeah, I got two female practitioners that are going to be uh, waxing it with me, <laughs> waxing intellectually about Greater Magic. Uh, looking forward to that. Send me all of your questions that you have about Greater Magic, and then maybe if you have some that are, you know, central around uh, the females of the species, <laughs> uh, send those to me as well. Also at info at 9centspodcast.com. Or better yet, send both together in the same email, don't waste those emails. Because <laughs> maybe there's a finite amount or something. <laughs> oh, I had a I had a good week. My wife got sick. That wasn't good. But she started getting me sick, which also, not good. I forced myself to go on a hike. Uh, the first to the hot springs of the season. And I posted some pictures of it up uh, on some social networking site. However... It's always better in concept than, than execution. Whenever you're going out into the wilderness, in my opinion, 
I, I have a great time planning it. I have uh, an amazing time getting out there and actually enjoying the fresh air and the, the wilderness and uh, just being out there and alone in silence, uh, surrounded entirely by nature, not hearing anything of modern society, which is the best. But when you get back... <laughs> I'm just always so exhausted. So right now, I, my hip flex... And I work out, too. That's the worst part of it all. Is I exercise during the week. I wouldn't think that going hiking on the weekend would cause me the pain that it does. And yet, it does. Uh, totally kicked my ass this week. I mean, I have a young daughter, and so, you know, she's on my shoulders a lot of the time. But... That really shouldn't do it that much. And I think it's because this is really the second real hike we've had of the season, uh, the spring season, even though, it, like, I don't know, the mountains are clear enough that we can trudge through whether it's uh, snowy or not. Uh, in this case, it wasn't. And it was nice. Last week, we had some snow. I uh, went up to this uh, Donut Falls location, which is actually a really mild hike if it wasn't completely covered by snow. So we can normally you drive up to the hiking point. We had a because it was snow blocked, uh, we had to park way down by the uh, main road going through the canyon and hike up to the, the trailhead and then hike in. So it, it took us, I don't know, maybe three and a half, four hours uh, of what is normally like an hour round trip hike. I mean, it's really not that big of a deal. And through snow makes it that much worse, but it also made it that much more amazing because we were the only people up there and it was just... It was great. Uh, gosh, you know, if, if you're not in an area where you are afforded the opportunity to go out and just shake off society like, I don't know, like, like a bad cold or a flea or something off a dog's back, just shake it loose and then just reconnect with yourself on the most primal of level, it's... Uh, I mean, for me, it's it's really important, and it's an amazing experience. If if you have the opportunity, get out there, guys. Come on, uh, and ladies. And if you aren't in an area, try to make a trip this year, because it's, it's really nice. It's worth it. Uh, nature's good. <laughs> it's good. You know, good. <laughs> so anyway, I do have non-bullshit here for the show for you. And the Devil's Advocate... Um, Satanism in the Armed Forces. I'm going to give you some of my early military experience. Um, I'd never hid once that I was a Satanist. And uh, I'm just sort of going to wax intellectually about that. Uh, probably not so intellectually, but I'll wax about it nonetheless. In the Infernal Informant, I have Atheist Rally on National Mall, the Reason Rally, largest gathering of non-believers. I think I might surprise you with this one. Uh, I was given this article by a listener. Thank you so much. You know who you are. I truly appreciate it. And for everyone out there, if you have, and this has happened you know, a handful of times in the, the year plus that I've been doing the show, if you have topics you want me to speak to, well, please send them to me. I'm, I'm very happy to talk about what you want to hear about. Uh, sometimes the national media or international media doesn't do uh, a fair job about, you know, at length discussion. And so I would like to, you know, I would like to do that for you. Uh, also, another article, carefully and sometimes somberly, owners hand over exotic pets. I think this should be a interesting topic or interesting article to talk about. And very excited. I have author Ari Bach. Uh, you may remember him from last year on my birthday show, which was a horrible, horrible thing to do to uh, an inter interviewee. But um, he 
uh, amazing author. He put out already a surrealist tarot deck, which is really great. And if you haven't listened to that interview, you can skip to the last half of the August 14th episode of last year, because the first half is just me really drunk uh, singing and bullshitting. Uh, but the interview was actually really good, and the tarot deck is amazing. Well, he came out with a book that he spoke to in that interview called Valhalla, and we're going to be diving into that. Now, this, and maybe this is a running theme with my interviews. I start planning it for being the later half of the show, and some of these interviews, man, like Ari Box, we talked for like an hour 45, and I condensed it to 35 minutes. So, I mean, I have a lot of stuff we talked about specifically to this book that we're not even going to be touching here. And, you know, he's not the only one. So I may have to rethink this limit that I'm placing on myself. I just don't want to really overload you as a listener. So that's why I'm always trying to be a little wary on length. Uh, either way, it's an amazing interview. The book, Valhalla, is great. Pick it up and look forward to that in the second half of the show. And I'm going to give you a little bizarre, the bizarre boxers that are liquid-resistant. Water beating up. Yeah, that's right. Boxers. And so for you ladies who don't have boxers or don't wear boxers like guys and specifically don't have penises, which would make you a lady, uh, <laughs> then maybe this isn't important for you. But you might want to listen just for humor anyway. Uh, and that's going to do it. Sit back, relax, grab a drink with me. Raise your glass to another nine cents. Say why bother? How you done? Great. Let's cut the bullshit and get real. Why this purity you feel about evil? For Christ's sake, why? They don't lie to me. I guess, Father. You gotta feel that old nick in your soul, and it becomes clear. Like it did for me, the first time. That's when I realized my one true calling in life. And what's that? Shit, man. <laughs> I'm a born devil's advocate. Welcome to the devil's advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm a member of the Church of Satan. But I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is you may all. be surprised to hear... But there's nothing wrong with being a Satanist in the military. I mean, <laughs> laying a little uh, framework here, there's nothing wrong with being a Satanist. <laughs> it's not like an AA meeting I'm having here. Hi, my name's, my name's Adam, and I'm a Satanist. That's your cue. You're supposed to say something now. <laughs> and, and so, it's funny, because when you say I am a Satanist to a drill sergeant or to fellow soldiers there is always the reaction of fear behind confusion uh, shock uh, they're wondering whether you're just lying whether you're just trying to play a joke on them or you know get a rise out of them and it always takes that weird awkward one to four seconds of them staring at you looking and waiting for you to crack a smile before they realize he's not joking and it's funny 
when I when I first went in the military, obviously, you know, the reception and the introduction to basic training time of sort of that first day at basic training was uh, pretty hard. I was quitting smoking. Well, obviously, you can't smoke there. So I was wanting a cigarette at the time. And, you know, I had a lot of feelings, you know, flooding through my body. Um, it was really the first time I had been at length away from every, you know, all the creature comforts that I was used to, um, and my new wife. So it was pretty difficult. <clears throat> so <laughs> I didn't ever consider, because I'd always been open about my religion, about who I was, I'd never considered that there would be any negative connotation to it. I mean, I knew that my parents in a religious area had problems. And I actually went to basic training in uh, South Carolina, Fort Jackson. So, um, there are a lot of... Well, maybe that's not fair. There are a lot of people who have are completely ignorant about Satanism, for one. And those were the people that you would always meet. It, I never ran into someone that had a, a history with Satanism and knew what the hell they were talking about. It was always someone who had a friend who was into it or, you know, their friend's brother or something like that. It was never an immediate contact or connection. So, the you know, my earliest first experience was drill sergeants explaining that on Sunday you had the ability to go to church and uh, if you chose not to go to church, then you would be at in the barracks cleaning and uh, they asked if anyone had a non-Christian faith, and so I stepped forward and raised my hand, and, you know, I'm a Satanist. And he's like, uh, you need Jesus, son, and everyone got a little laugh. But that was the first introduction to me being completely different to everyone else, and really the first at what would end up making me the, uh, I wouldn't say the, um, one of the most powerful people in that group. Uh, because there is a certain respect that comes with something that you fear or that you don't know about or the boldness of proclaiming something that is obviously in their eyes taboo and not having any issue with it. Now, I'm not a big guy. I'm not an intimidating guy. I'm just a <laughs> spindly white dude. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of intimidation uh, amid the ranks uh, you know, when you're working in that tight of a quarters. And I never had any issues. And I think it's because of that. I mean, on my back, I have a sigil, a sigil of baphomet. So whenever I'm in the shower, that's obviously, you know, just out there. I, I come forth and I admit, you know, proclaim proudly what I am. And so it was always kind of weird. I actually ended up painting this mural of... Uh, it was like this um, scene of, of death and carnage, which was influenced by um, Dante's Inferno that the my drill instructor actually had a fondness for. And so he asked me to paint it because of me being so open about my, my religion and, you know, everything. He, he just sort of had that respect for me, which was nice. Now, later in my military career, it would change a little bit. I had three sixes on my inner finger and... Uh, you know, and I'm going to touch on this in this atheist article that I'm going to be talking about, but I think there are two distinct paths, and maybe I shouldn't go too far into it because I'm going to go into it much more later, that people arrive at Satanism. And one is the occult, and the other is atheist skepticism. I came from the occult path. I very much love the idea of of, of um, darkness and, and creatures of the night that are beyond everything 
explanation. I love the concept of pseudoscience. And that may sound weird, but I do. I realize it and recognize it for what it is, but I still love it. Um, and so because of that, because of my uh, love for um, uh, really anti-Christianity films like The Omen, I tattooed 666, another way, like this digital bathroom on my back, of proclaiming who I was to anyone that would want to know. And so people would, like, see that, and then they'd go tell their friends, like, he has three sixes, he's devil, he's evil, which always made me sort of chuckle. I never thought anyone took it seriously. This black dude came up to me one time, and uh, his name was Doss. <laughs> We'd actually end up drinking a lot of gin and juice together throughout the career, but uh, really great guy. But he came up to me like the, the elected person to confront the Satanist, <laughs> which was really funny. He's like, so what? Uh, and he sounded like Scooby-Doo when he would laugh. It was really great. He had a really thick Alabama accent. He's like, so, uh, and I can't do it, so I'm not going to pretend. Uh, you know, I heard you're the devil child. Uh, and maybe that's not <laughs> a good accent. But so I showed it to him, and, you know, I explained it a little bit. So he went back and explained to the, <laughs> I guess, collection of idiots that didn't have the spine to talk to me directly. And that would actually end up... Um, you know, endearing me to quite a number of individuals that I normally wouldn't even speak to. Uh, there was a preacher who joined the military, and he and I had l at length discussions. Uh, really good discussions, too. Like, surprisingly good. Uh, Non-denominational Christian rode a motorcycle, so maybe that helped uh, or whatever. But anyway, good guy. I just completely disagree with everything he stood for. Uh, it does get to a point when you're in the military, though, when you have to come up as a group and you're sort of just told about what the military has to offer. Um, the chaplains, for example, you will always be sort of explained chaplain uh, side of things and, and how they can support you. And so I'm curious, you know, as I am, I raise my hand, I'm like, well, I'm a Satanist. Is there anything that you can offer me? Now, I know and certainly this time I knew, that there was nothing that they would be able to offer me. It's not like I want to have a congregation or anything. But it's one of those things that, it, one, it's going to catch everyone off guard. Two, it's going to proclaim myself in a very bold, aggressive way. And three, it's going to keep them on their toes, which is I think is, is incredibly important. If you're going to claim that you support every religion and then ignore every other religion other than a Christian then you're not doing your damn job. So I'm not saying I want, like, a group. And certainly at the time, I wasn't saying I wanted, like, a, a chapel hour just to Satanism. But just be aware that I am here, and maybe I don't want to have to stand through every single group prayer that you would otherwise have made me. You know? And, and that sort of was, like, the, my entire military career was everyone up there praying and me literally out of rank, standing in the back, head held high, shocked that there was so much ignorance all around these people that physically and um, emotionally I would trust with my life if combat ever struck. Um, and one of the things, you know, I certainly ran into, and I assume I'm not going to be the only one, is that when you do proclaim yourself and you're so honest and bold about it, that there are those who are going to flock to you. And it's going to take a strong individual or a very humble individual to, you know, let them know, look, I'm, I'm not your guy. There is an organization there for a reason, 
And I will ha- be happy if you want to borrow my Satanic Bible to, you know, borrow it. And I ended up having to get an extra copy because it was always on loan to other people who were curious and, and really interested. And um, it's just, it's funny because you are in this tight little environment like basic training, for example. And there are those who are out there going to church and coming back and using that as strength or talking to their family when they get the opportunity on the weekends and using that as strength or or connecting with each other and using that as strength. And there is a small group of us who just like to use reason and the allure of Satanism as a way to draw strength. And it ended up being, you know, three or four of us just sort of bullshitting at the same time every day. It wasn't, it was never a meeting or anything like that or an organization or anything like that. It was just sort of just people with like minds, like this, like the show. I mean, you know, everything I do here, getting together, uh, lack of beer, lack of cigarettes, but just talking and, uh, uh, laughing at the absurdity of everyone else. And, and I can't say that my experience is going to parallel everyone else's, but I can say that the military is very friendly. My drill instructor came up to me, he's like, look, there, there are multiple understandings of Satanism, which at the time I didn't know of, to be honest. I thought there was ignorance of it, and then there was Satanism. Um, and what he was referring to was the pseudo-Satanist groups out there. And he was asking me which one I adhered to. So, you know, I let him know. Uh, the Church of Satan, founded by Anton Sander LaVey. This is my Satanic Bible, and this is what I believe. And from that moment on, we were square. We were good. There's nothing wrong with having the balls of pronouncing who and what you are. I understand that not everyone wants to, and it doesn't have to do with lack of balls or anything like that. Don't get me wrong. Um, some areas are much more much more close-minded than others, we'll say. And so for safety, for your own peace of mind, um, by all means, you know, do what you feel you need to do. I've been lucky in that I've never had to hide it, and it's a liberating feeling, and I, I feel very fortunate. And I have to give credit to the world around me, because they're the ones that are going to react good or bad. And if Utah is such a horrible place, why have I never had any issue? while I lived here. You know what I mean? So, take it in stride. Uh, The military is pro, I wouldn't say pro, but they're not (laughs) anti-Satanism. And uh, for that matter, either is Utah. (laughs) That's really all I had to talk about in this Devil's Advocate. So let's move on to uh, Infernal Format. This is the Huffington Post culture. Atheist rally on National Mall. The Reason Rally, largest gathering of non-believers. By Kimberly Winston, 2012. Atheists and non-believers gathered on the National Mall Saturday, March 24, in a bid to show politicians, voters, and even themselves that they have grown into a force to be recognized and reckoned with. We're here to deliver a message to America, David Silverman, president of America Atheists, one of the rally sponsors, told the crowd. We are here and we will never be silent again. Indeed, thousands came out for what organizers dubbed the Reason Rally and billed as the largest ever gathering of non-believers in one place. They stood in a steady and sometimes heavy rain as speakers, singers, writers, comedians, and activists charged them with channeling their common rejection of God into a force for political change. 
We are here to celebrate our belief in reason, science, and the power of the human mind, comedian Paul Provenza said from the podium as raindrops fail. We are here to say to elected politicians that there is a base for them to stand on, to stand up to the religious right. That brought a cheer from the crowd, estimated at between 8,000 and 10,000 people, a sharp increase over the Godless March on Washington, another atheist-themed rally held 10 years ago in the same spot that attracted about 3,000. Also visibly different was the composition of the crowd, which was largely under the age of 30, at least half female, and included as many people of color. Ten years ago, the crowd was mostly white, over 40, and predominantly male. Charles Martin, 25, was among the African Americans at the rally, which he said was the first formal step into the atheist community. I wanted to be around other people who had similar ideas to me, he said, his eyes on speaker Hemnet Mahata. Meta? I don't know. A popular atheist blogger who is also a man of color. It is very rare for me to find other people who are not religious, especially in the black community. Just, you know, that's... I gotta hand it to the dude. Um, that's gotta be a huge deal, because religion in uh, America, certainly in the South, is what kept uh, slaves sane. You know, I mean, they literally use that as a bonding, and that ended up being the cornerstone to the black communities, is faith. Amazing uh, that there are uh, the black community members breaking away from that and standing up. Uh, It's... You know, for them, it's going to be a big deal. I mean, you know, you're literally talking to the culture that freed slaves, the religious black culture, saying, I don't want to be immediately connected to you. I appreciate what you did, and I appreciate what you stood for, but I am not of faith. I mean, that takes some real genuine cojones. Uh, something that I I will never understand, not being a man of color myself. Uh, you know, having that sort of a uh, an expected reaction when it comes to Jesus. <laughs> okay, so where was it? Jesse Galliff, a spokesman for the Reason Rally, said diversity is a major goal of its twenty non-theistic sponsoring organizations. We can't succeed if we're only coming from one demographic. He said. The rally speakers, many wearing red to match the scarlet letter, A, adopted by the community as a sign of solidarity, touched on men... What? So... I understand what A means, and I understand the idea of putting a big-ass letter on your chest, like, what, a superhero? Like a big S for Superman? You're doing an A for... Atheist? (laughs) So, uh... Let's say, where did this come from? Uh, The Scarlet Letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne. A standing for adultery, not atheist. I I understand repurposing things. Maybe you don't do it as like a so-on letter. Um, Because that's kind of played. So, I mean, let's talk on on literary terms. Sewing a letter onto your uh, clothes is a very bad thing. Let's talk about real world terms. When Jews had to wear... So on a mark that they were Juden, <laughs> that they were Jews. What about uh, superheroes putting a big S on your chest? You're a you're a pansy in what spandex? Like it's never been a really good thing 
So, hey, let's adopt that. Now, look, I understand. I'm a Satanist. I adopt some very <laughs> negative connotated uh, imagery. I just think, hey, that's kind of our thing, okay? Like, don't be coming up trying to do the scapegoat thing when there's already someone who does it uh, better than anyone else. You know, we're here. <laughs> I don't... Maybe I'm, maybe I'm looking at it too far, too deeply, too much. Uh, okay, so the A was adopted as a sign for solidarity. Meh. Uh, separation of church and state, state, science, education, equality, rights for women, and the influence of religion on politics among them. These were the uh, many issues that unite non-theists. Politics was a common theme. As many non-theists are concerned about the religiosity of the Republican presidential candidates. I'm angry that Rick Santorum is a viable candidate for president, said Greta Christina, a prominent atheist blogger, to cheers and whistles. Uh, Greta, I hate to tell you, he is not a viable candidate. He's on the stage and everything, but he is not. (laughs) Republicans are stupid. Okay, some of them are. But the Republican machine, as it were, well, they haven't really collectively agreed that he's going to be the man. And for reason. (laughs) I mean, because he's so ridiculous in his religiosity. One big hit with the crowd was Jessica Alquist, the 16-year-old Rhode Island high school student who successfully sued her school district to remove a prayer from her school's walls. During the fight, State Representative Peter Palumbo called her an evil little thing, an epitaph she has since proudly embraced. I'm here to tell you that what I did can be done by anybody, she said, and you are all evil little things to me. (laughs) I can't help but really want to hear a hail scene back to then. Maybe just me. I'm actually like, not even trying to, like reading that, I'm doing like little horns here on my hand. I like that. About 20 protesters confined to the sidelines seemingly agreed, bearing religious tracts and signs declaring the infallibility of the Bible. They vocally promised hellfire to non-believers. If they resist the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will end up in a lake of fire, said Marvin Holmes, 70, who traveled from western New York with four people from three churches. Marvin Holmes is a fucking idiot. Does he really believe that there is a lake of fire just waiting and that there's this character called Jesus Christ? You know what? He probably actually has a big J, like, sewn into his shirts. I'm I'm almost positive. (laughs) That's, like, gonna, like... He's, like, a Walmart greeter. Like, okay, let's say Walmart's, like, heaven and and Jesus Christ is, like, the Walmart greeter and he's, like, this really old guy because, well, he was alive 2,000 years ago. He's got to be fucking old, right? And and everyone's, like, sort of filtering into the the, the Walmart (laughs) auto-opening gates of heaven and he's, like, uh, thank you for coming to our heaven, um, lake of fire, lake of fire, lake of fire, uh, electronics aisle 12, lake of fire, you know what I mean? Like, he's (laughs) filtering people like that. But the overall mood on the mall was festive and family-oriented. Despite the four-lettered words slung regularly from the podium, Bonnie Hayes, 71, watched the rally from a collapsible chair near one of the two large video screens. A former Presbyterian, she became an atheist three years ago, and the rally was her first outing as an atheist. It makes me proud to be here with her, Haynes said of her daughter, 
Dinah. Appleby. Appleby. Hmm. Uh, 50 and an atheist sitting beside her. We want our friends to know that atheists can still have high morals and values and still be atheists. Now, wait a second. If we have high morals and values, why are we going to go burn a leg of fire? Did anyone talk to Marvin Holmes about this? The whole concept is starting not to make sense. <laughs> Zach Stifler and Mwenya Mwimamanzi? Come on, people! You know what, from now on, if there's... If you have more than two consonants next to each other in your name... Just saying. Consonants or consonants. <laughs> if you have two letters that are impossible to say next to each other... I'm just going to call you Smith, all right? Just just from now on. I'm not really going to, but I'm, I'm a little frustrated by this because I get this every single <laughs> freaking article. It's like no one of any interest is named Smith. I don't even like the name Smith, but I want someone named Smith in an article. Just once for nine cents, can you do it? Huh? Both 23 and from religious backgrounds attended as out-of-the-closet atheists for the first time. It's really encouraging, and it makes me think that there's hope for a different kind of future. Smith said, standing with Stifler's arm around her shoulders near the back of the crowd. Religion has dominated human history, but maybe it's time for a new direction. I disagree with that last statement, and this is actually the end of the article. Um, no, no, religion has not dominated human history. The capitalization of people's ignorance through religion... And there is a distinct difference. One is the genuine belief of their religious tenets, and the other is the the very Constantine manner of using the people's belief in religion to control them. That is the reality of religion in history. Not this idea of this wonderful afterlife and everyone has to live happily. I mean, the sole reason why there was Ten Commandments is because Moses had, if you can even believe that any of that's real, is because uh, he had to convince a bunch of slaves how to live because they were literally animals that the Egyptians used to do work. Like, they were just, they had no concept of culture or society. So he had to create that for them. I mean, we, we can't stop, we can't continue believing that this is all real <laughs> and applicable. Okay, so, you know, coming to this article, I and this is sort of coming from my position of how I came into Satanism, because that influences my worldview. I came from the occult side. I did not come, as mentioned before, uh, from the skeptic atheist side. So, for me, it's very easy to accept the idea of greater magic and lesser magic. It is very easy to accept those wonderful notions of pseudoscience, uh, even though they haven't been proven yet, but then isn't that every piece of science at one point or another? Pseudo? Really? So I love that idea. I love that side of it. So when I, you know, when I come into something, I've never considered myself, and even, even though I share a lot of the same ideas with atheists, like, I don't wear that badge. I would never put an A on my shirt or something. And it's not because of the, you know, sort of the, the connotations that I was talking about, joking about earlier. And it's not because I don't think, I think there's anything wrong with being an atheist. I don't. It's just that I, I have a specific aesthetic that is tied to those worldviews that are defined as atheists. 
and and those aesthetics are a world apart from atheists. I have a lot of atheist friends, a lot of them, uh, who have no connection, and, and they just can't wrap their heads around Satanism because of their staunch militant, in like I like to call, term militant atheism. Uh, and so, and that's sort of, you know, where I'm coming from. It's, it's like that idea, like, I could never be a, a vegetarian. Let's set aside the fact that I love meat. But there's this sort of militant aspect to ideas that people sort of run with when I feel like they're missing something else in their life. Um, like, I, I like animals, and I don't think you should abuse animals. But I'm also not a member of PETA because I think they're a bunch of lunatics. <laughs> I, I think there's a definite hierarchy that we have defined on our planet, that nature itself is defined, and we're not breaking that by having house pets or eating pork, which is the most amazing animal, pig, on the planet for consumption. So, atheists, I think, they're, they're just... If, if you're going to define yourself solely and wholly as an atheist, which I don't think everyone in this crowd is, or does, and you know nothing wrong with them if they do, but I, I think that's the type of person that's going to have difficulty really wrapping their head around things that are core and central to my being, which is magic and uh, pseudoscience and uh, occult trappings. Things that I take great pleasure in. So, yeah, I mean, when when I was given this article, I, I do like that there is a non-religious movement, but there's something very religious about the movement, and maybe that's at the core of it that I I have issue with. That I, I don't like the idea of trading non-belief in religion for religion. Because it is just the same. And, and this, you know, like I just mentioned before, any group is going to do this. I mean, I'm a Satanist. I'm not an atheist. Yes, I have very atheistic worldviews. Yes, I share very strong connections uh, philosophically and ideologically with atheists. But I'm a Satanist. And there is a difference. And I think it's important to note, because I don't want to dumb down or water down what it means to be a Satanist by saying, oh, we're just atheists with a little theatrical uh, side to us. Because that's not all it is. There's a significant difference. And a lot of it has to do with the understanding of concepts not isolated to, but like, greater magic. Um, And that's really why I focus so much on stuff like that, because it... It's part of the defining worldview I exist in. You know, that's that's my world. So, I don't know. Thank you for bringing this article to me. I, I think it's great. I think it can go too far, and I hope it doesn't. Because just like I don't enjoy living in a wholly religious world, I would hate to live in a world with no religion. Because I'm a Satanist, and Satanism is a religion. And I don't want to lose <laughs> that right. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. It's it's a fine line I'm talking about, and it certainly does not apply to every atheist and certainly not every Satanist. But, you know, it's I, I thought I should speak to it a little bit. Let's talk about the next article here. This is the New York Times. Carefully and sometimes somberly, owners hand over exotic pets. Uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut by Noah Rosenberg, published April 1st. Hey, that's today. It's relevant. There was Buck, all 12 green iridescent feet of him stretched across the sky. His reptilian tongue lapped the raw air, and a light mist clung to his thick body before a team of handlers managed to coil and stuff him into a small plastic bin. 
Buck was ready for transport, and whether he or his owners liked it or not, he was starting a new, possibly healthier life. A Burmese python, about six inches across, Buck was not alone at Connecticut's Beardsley Zoo on Saturday, designated as the zoo's second exotic animal amnesty day in partnership with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Another Burmese python, Bruno, along with an alligator snapping turtle named Jaws and two American alligators, an illegal all illegal to own in Connecticut, were also handed over to the zoo in an effort by their owners to allow them to anonymously adhere to regulatory changes that clarify the legality of exotic pet possession in the state. The first Amnesty Day, held at the zoo in 2009, came just months after a chimpanzee in Stanford, Connecticut, viciously mauled a woman who he had known for years. That 200-pound chimpanzee, Travis, was stabbed by his owner in a desperate attempt to subdue him, but it was a gunshot from a police officer that ultimately killed him. The episode, in February 2009, invited a world of scrutiny upon those who claimed exotic animals as pets and the regulatory environment that permitted their possession. It also played a significant role in the decision to hold the Amnesty Day, according to Dennis Shane, Communications Director for the Department. The Department Commissioner, Daniel C. Esty, who was uh, not with the agency at the time in 2009 mauling, emphasized that organizers had taken into account not only the chimp problem, but a set of larger issues across the country. It's public safety, public health, ecological health, he said, we've got a huge python in there today. That should just not be out and about. Buck and Bruno, however, were just overgrown house pets, according to Rick McPherson, who, with another man, dropped off the pythons at the zoo on Saturday morning. The pythons had lived at the Waterford County School Experimental Education Center for close to 15 years. Mr. McPherson said, while they had been used in therapy sessions and ultimately helped thousands of students with special needs... You have this inner feeling, said Mr. McPherson, 64, after his snakes had been transferred from their cages into portable plastic bins and carried into a zoo building. You know you're going to miss them, but you know they're going to a better place. God, that is horrible. That's what you say when you have a pet that's dying or died. Not to a pet that's being taken to a zoo to hopefully be treated properly and, and uh, being able to be looked at for safely. In the case of seven animals brought to the Beardsley Zoo on Saturday, including a ball python and a Dumeril's boa, both of which are not technically illegal to possess in Connecticut, but were nonetheless accepted by officials, the better place is in Beverly, Massachusetts, the home of Rainforest Reptile Shows, a reptilian education organization. At the end of the five-hour amnesty day, the education organization's herpetologist and general curator, Michael K. Ralbovsky, and colleagues displayed some of the animals that had been collected. They had turned away several large pets, including a small, seemingly harmless red-eared slider turtle and green iguana, in order to focus their resources on the illegal more dangerous species at large. In 2009, organizers had welcomed more than 100 legal and 14 illegal animals. They decided to forgo an amnesty day uh, in 2010, they said, as to not encourage a culture of temporary pet ownership. Held off by Mr. Ralbovsky, Jaws, the alligator snapping turtle, had brown flesh that was tinged red, but when the herpetologist believed to be an infection. Its condition, he said, was made worse by an improper diet of goldfish. He was one of those animals 
you, your son gets on the internet, said a man who had dropped jaws off and bid farewell to the animal by spilling the brackish water from his tank onto the zoo parking lot. Jeez, what an ass. Likewise, an American alligator that was only two and a half feet long might have had severely stunted growth, Mr. Robalski said. It was possibly a quarter of the size it should have been, and its skin was flaky and gray, he noted. Still, Mr. Robowski was confident that he and colleagues could re rehabilitate the animals by creating a healthier and more sustainable environment for them. I guarantee it, he said, an attitude that would seem to please those like Mr. McPherson, who struck a slightly somber tone as he and his colleagues left the zoo. It was important for me to say to this guy... Take good care of my friend, Mr. McPherson said, as his van pulled away with two empty Burmese python cages in the back. And I know he will. So that was the article. And I'm sort of torn on this, because on one hand, as a pet owner, I understand the connection that you can have. No matter the uh, exotic nature of the pet, if you have taken care of it, if you have raised it for any length of time, and certainly if it was from its, its infancy... You, you you grow a connection with them. But on the other hand, uh, much like the snapping turtle and this, this alligator, you are not capable as a, a regular human being, I'm going to say, because you, not necessarily all the times, but more times than not, we're not trained on how to properly care for these exotic creatures. So there is, yes, that sort of public concern, and this is relevant because it's a lot like how Anton LaVey lost his tiger, in that it was public fear that was the catalyst for that, as I understand it. Uh, and we have to realize that, yes, there are owners that are quite capable of handling exotic animals, that are trained appropriately. They do exist out there, yes. However, what about that person that comes knocking at your door and you maybe left the cage open or didn't have it caged in the first place, this creature, and it strikes or it attacks? I mean, there are literally an infinite amount of scenarios where this ownership of this exotic creature can go very badly. And no matter the best of intentions, shit's gonna happen. So you have to take that in consideration. If you truly love these animals, then support an organization that can properly take care of them. Or else you run the risk. Like the, I, I read this article uh, to you all a little while back of this uh, gentleman who was running this zoo out of his acre farm. And the animals were horribly malnourished and just treated poorly because he was an animal lover yes but he didn't know how to properly care for so many animals like that it takes a lot of money and that's why you have specific organizations set up to do so if you're really an animal lover then you will understand that the animal needs to be taken care of properly i mean realistically that's that's what you have to come to terms with and if it's considered an exotic animal, you may not like it. It may not, in your mind, be fair. But in this case, it's law. It's legislation. You have to understand that, if not the fairness part. So, do what is right. Support organizations that do care for these wonderful creatures. That care for them with the knowledge necessary to ensure a happy, as happy as it can be anyway, long life for them. And then get out there and see them when you can. You know, appreciate them 
from the stage. I understand the argument that uh, people like PETA proclaim that, you know, this is akin to slavery. I understand the argument as absurd. <laughs> I don't agree with it at all. Uh, <laughs> we are animals. You know, I, I mean, we can't even trust each other uh, all the time. So why would we think that we could trust another species to understand us and our quirky ways uh, we can't even police ourselves. Why are we going to expect the animals to be able to police us or us to be able to police them? You may have a love for these creatures, but what about uh, Smith or Bob? <laughs> I'm going to throw in Smith every episode now. Uh, so I hope you understand my point here. I, I do love animals, but I also understand that that means that I have to respect those that can properly take care of them. And really look down at those animal owners who are doing it for selfish reasons and not really actually the animal itself. There is sort of this idea of, well, I'm an exotic animal owner and that makes me... You know, this <clears throat> very arrogant stance. What about this creature? Are you really able to give it the life that you would want if you were that creature? I mean, I would say more times than not, no, is the answer. So think about that. Uh, interesting article. That's going to do it for the Infernal Informant. Let's jump right into Ari Bach and Valhalla. Oh, God. No. Just me. <laughs> Did you know that after the heart stops beating, the brain can function for well over seven minutes? We got six more minutes to play. Creature Feature. Welcome to another Creature Feature. I'm being joined by friend of the show, Ari Bach. We're, we got him here to talk about his new novel, Valhalla. Now, if you'll remember, last year we met, uh, it was sometime in August, I believe, uh, in mid-August, and he had just released a tarot deck, a surrealist tarot deck. Amazing interview, and he alluded to this very novel being released back then. Uh, now it's here. And let me tell you something, everything that he had uh, mentioned was going to be in there is in there uh, to some degree, except for the sparkling vampires. What the hell, man? I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> we actually got a lawsuit from some lady named Stephanie Meyer. She said she came up with the sparkly vampires. <laughs> I don't know anything about that, but the lawyer said we had to remove it, so right, no well, sparkling vampires. You can't get them all. <laughs> well, how are you, man? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's great to have you back, uh, and, and certainly after having read this, I, you never really know when you start uh, getting to know someone, and they're like, oh, well, I just put out a book, or I just put out this painting, and you gotta see it, or, you know, you check it out. Whether or not you're gonna like it, for one, and then you have to sort of make that decision before you ever find out, am I gonna lie to this person? <laughs> like... <laughs> Is my respect for them as an individual going to supersede their talent? <laughs> and I'm just going to lie to them about whether I like it or not, whatever it is, it'd be a book or a piece or a food, dinner, whatever. Um, but I truly did enjoy this. It was it was really good. You have gone into such detail. Before we get into really uh, the book here uh, specifically, are you planning on doing more of these, uh, like as in a series? Yes, absolutely. The second and 
third books of an intended trilogy are already in early drafts. I've finished the first draft of both of the sequels. The entire series was originally intended to be made into movies, as a lot of people tend to notice as they're reading it. It's pretty visual. Mm -hmm. But it was originally written as a screenplay, and this is kind of the novelization of a screenplay for a movie that never got made. All three of the movies are written, all three of the books are being written, and there's quite a bit of leeway for turning it into a whole James Bond-length series of ongoing films or books. Uh, just the first one out right now. Really quickly in this. <laughs> uh, um, hopefully the next book will be... Well, I'd like to say next year it will be complete, hmm. but other projects like Snail Factory and such have kind of bumped that down. I just work on it whenever something comes to me at the moment. Oh, yeah. And I mention it because this is a fully realized world. I mean, with uh, histories and just tool evolution. I mean, everything from uh, language and culture and religion to uh, technology and uh, world history. It's it's fantastic. So let's uh, let's start here at the uh, at the beginning. Um, you have a clear vision of the future in the book. Does this speak to something that you just sort of see coming out? And I've always sort of wondered this. Let me let me backtrack a little bit. Whenever you watch a movie um, that's sci-fi in nature, you always kind of wonder if it's just meant to be entertainment or if the author truly believes that that is a possible future. So uh, what, what do you say? Entertainment above all, but in Star Trek fashion, I see the universe that takes place in as one of the most fun things to develop. So there's what you see in book one is like a tenth of what I've designed for the world it takes place in. You'll see much more of it in the later books. But the world is my best guess, to be sure. In some way... In some ways, it is a satire of what's out there now, especially with the companies and yeah. how exactly the politics work. That's basically how it is now, and I think it will only improve and expand in the future. A lot of the technology is technology I believe is possible, and I've tried as best as I can to figure out what the world will look like in 2230 with the Internet and the um, cyber world and brain tie-ins depicted in the book, I think that's exactly where we'll be in a couple hundred years. I've also said it in the year 2230, it's kind of unwise in sci-fi circles to pick a year, because if you pick 2001 A Space Odyssey, right. and they're not there by 2001, though in that case I hear Stanley Kubrick was simply disappointed with humanity rather than <laughs> willing to admit he may have misjudged anything. Um, I certainly, I can't stand things that are set in like 2015 and have flying cars. Yeah, it's just so, like a stone's throw from now. Yeah, I'm at least 200 years out for the flying cars, but I'm willing to put something on the line and say, yes, I really think this is where we're headed. There are other things in the book, such as force fields and other elements, which I'm less convinced about, especially a couple things that rely on quantum mechanics. Yeah. That's, at this point, something that could turn out to be absolute, complete, utter nonsense. And what I'm saying in the book will never happen. And 
I'm okay with that as long as I get a few things right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's all under the spirit of, of science fiction. So it's whether or not it'll happen in the real world, it absolutely happens in the world you've created. And it, it, what's important, in at least in my opinion, is it's believable in the world that you've created and you've presented. So let's sort of give a, a, a quick rundown for the listeners who um, have yet to pick up this book and, and truly again it's it's called Valhalla by Ari Bach. Pick it up. It is worth a read, absolutely. The world is it's like uh nations have ended, corporations have sort of swallowed everything and and I don't mean to co- I'm going to be comparing it to other things, you know, for comparison's sake, uh for people who haven't read it, but you know, it's sort of like the way uh, aliens, for example, corporations sort of have swallowed everything and they just sort of run things. I think there's actually a mention somewhere in the novel of the company from Alien called Weyland-Yutani being bought out by another company. Um, there are it, It's definitely loaded to the brim with in-jokes, sci-fi references. You'll find bits and pieces of Star Trek, Star Wars, uh, even some rather obscure non-sci-fi things that really have no place there. There's an inordinate number of references to... Norwegian black metal, just because it's one of my prime interests of the time. So there are quite a few names that metalheads might end up recognizing just used as character names. There is a great deal of emphasis on Norse mythology. Obviously the film is, sorry, the book is called Valhalla, so there's going to be some degree of it. You don't get into a lot of the mythology in book one. Book two is going to be called Ragnarok and is going to be, with this cast characters and setting, a pretty straightforward adaptation of some of the events in either sagas or general myth books. Um, I think Gods of the North was probably my prime reference for them. If you know what to look for, you'll find a lot of characters based very clearly on Norse gods. You'll find a few myths and even a few bits of technology. The uh, central power plant in Valhalla res- somewhat resembles a tree. Yeah. And the tree is Yggdrasil in the original myths. In this, it's, I think, the YDRSL power system, which <laughs> stands for something that I never got to cram into the book. But that sort of reference is going to be really common in there but again all of that and all of the technology all of the setting is all subservient to explosions and (laughs) chases and gunplay it's very much a action novel all of the rest is just in support of that because you know you have to have some sort of character to care about it's done backwards in that usually somebody has a great plot so they add action to it and end up with a great book or movie. In this case it was all about action and I just kept filling in the world over many many years. I started writing it when I was maybe 12 or 13 after seeing Fifth Element. What? Um, Yeah I started writing it a really long time ago and it was nonsense back then but over 15 years I just kept adding and adding and adding and eventually all of those explosions had characters that I cared about <laughs> behind them, and the things making the explosions had technological backstories behind them. Wow. So um, one of one of the, and, and this is sort of an undertone to it all, 
So it may have been like what you were speaking to just a second ago, uh, just sort of dusting it in at, as a sort of afterthought. But I found it nice that the idea of religion was this weird myth. Like, people didn't understand... Even reading itself, which was central and core to the survival of Christianity, was sort of like the rarest of things to be able to do in this time. Or at least in this story. It was, you know, she just could not read at all. Mm-hmm. So, um, are, are you speaking to a personal uh, ideology, or is this just, again, one of those sort of dusting of flavor uh, after between the action? The appearance of religion in the story as a archaic, diseased old thing that causes nothing but problems is certainly speaking to my own point of view. Um, the Especially in who the bad guys turn out to be, which I won't spoil, but that's obviously what I believe in. So it's worked its way in there. It's not central to the story. Uh, as for the main character being illiterate, I think people are going to be 99% illiterate in the future when they can have, if they can have thoughts simply downloaded into them. If, if you talk to any kids right now who have grown up on Wikipedia being able to have the sum total of human knowledge at their fingertips... <laughs> as we only dreamed of as kids, if that could be downloaded straight into your head, all of the Matrix or Ghost in the Shell, why would you read anything? It's going to be something that a few interesting, smart people like to do, but the vast majority, the hoi polloi, is just going to instantly know whatever they need to know, at least in this world. I'm not sure the real world will act quite like that. Yeah. But... The internet isn't going to stay text-based forever. Once it's plugged into our brains, if it's ever plugged into our brains, people are going to have very little use for reading text. And for Violet, that can be something of uh, Achilles' heel, especially in the world that she's in, where most of these people are capable of reading. And she's not the brightest candle in the set here. She is the premise of the story as far as the main character is concerned is that she's a relic she's pretty much useless to the world she is a violent tough as nails nasty person she when all of the world values nothing more than smart people people developing software people who are kind and happy and extraordinarily peaceful and she is far from peaceful so the story is for her about finding a place where violent, buff, tough, ancient, antiquated personality types not only fit in, but have much more of an influence than she ever thought they could when they were just calling her a bad kid. <laughs> uh, so we, we've already uh, established uh, for the audience here, Violet is the main character and depicted on the cover, I believe. Let me tell you something. The one problem I had with this cover, no nipples. <laughs> Everybody says that. Um, you can't really sell a book that has nudity on the cover. <laughs> so I went for a more artsy. So did you just go shirtless book. because um, of the... Uh... The Takari. Um, yeah, I think that one, that word is actually finished for dagger. And Oh, really? The, yeah, in the book, they're just these... They're the Valhalla equivalent of lightsabers. They're the one badass weapon that sets them beyond all other people that they're fighting with. And they're part insectoid robot, part 
blade and part body part, and they're actually literally carved out of your chest, made from your bones, and I guess you'll read more if you get the book, but the cover is intended to show off some... The cover is very financially based. It's something that I want people to look at and say, okay, I need to know what on earth this is, (laughs) so I'm willing to buy this book to find out. And I've, of course, just spoiled what it is for you. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Yeah, if you look at the cover, um, that's something called a Dakari, and you'll get to read a whole lot more about them in the book. And though it will not explain why the cover has no nipples, it will explain what (laughs) that thing coming out of her chest is. The rest is just, I wanted a good iconic image there are a lot of movie posters with iconic images and a lot of album artwork with iconic images. There aren't a whole lot of book covers that you see and recognize and think, Oh, this is that book. Mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot of book covers actually come out like, like a new edition with a new brand new cover. That's all chosen by the publisher has nothing to do with the author itself. So it's, it's sort of refreshing to be able to see from literally cover to cover. This is your creation. Um, and the Takari, you know, we did sort of spoil what that was uh, for the cover, but it is, it's it's a very original imagining, and one that I don't think is fully realized in practical use in this first book. I mean, it's, it's spoken to in great detail, um, or at least as much as is required to, to sort of, you know, break it down, but Violet doesn't use it in as far as I've gotten to, and to be quite honest, I am at like uh, 339 right now, of 440 or something like that pages. Um, so don't break any spoilers for me yet. <laughs> All right, no spoilers like, in there. Um, but yeah, the first book introduces it and you see Violet starting to fumble with it at first. Mm-hmm. Though at the point in the book where you are, she definitely hasn't embraced this tool or mastered it yet. I think she is not even capable of hitting a target with it. Uh, instead of chopping one of her instructor's hands off. Yeah, Yeah, like her biggest problem, and and we're sort of chopping this up for the listener here, but um, is uh, where I am right now. Her biggest problem is trusting it to be able to do whatever it's going to do. Uh, She has, and you know what, this is going to be a good segue here. Let's talk about Violet for a second, the central character of, of Valhalla. This is literally a teenage girl. I mean, this is not a woman by any stretch of the imagination. Not only in her uh, maturity, in her age, her physical age, but also in her emotional maturity. She is absolutely not capable, without assistance, of handling the most basics of emotions. She is very much a reactor. What was the, what was the idea behind, one, creating a heroine instead of a hero uh, for your story, and two, to make her so um, young and emotionally stunted? Probably because I wrote the book while I was young and emotionally stunted. (laughs) There's all of the aspects of myself that I needed to work on over the years are present in spades in Violet. She is basically, you know, a, a good character has a journey towards either something better or something worse. And in an action novel... It tends to be more fun, for my tastes at least, if somebody, you know, progresses, becomes better than what they were, and takes all of those, and this is more of a kind of 
satanic notion takes all those things that the rest of the world hates about themselves and turns them into their greatest strengths. So that's why she is what she is. Gender-wise, I don't know uh, why J.K. Rowling made Harry a boy or why I made Violet a girl. It seems to happen a lot, just uh, something to let the character be different enough from you that you can approach them as a character. If the main character in this were named Ar- were a boy named Ari, it would be the dullest shit heap of a book. <laughs> um, because that character grew up to be a writer and movies about movies and books about people writing novels are the most boring movies and novels. <laughs> this is definitely nothing like me. Um, to something you mentioned earlier, I did do the artwork for the cover and have actually done a great deal more artwork for the book, especially because it was intended as a movie. The movie version of this thing is actually fully storyboarded. I have every camera angle and every snippet of music planned out for it. So across the internet, you'll be able to find a few things that aren't even in the novel form. There are illustrations of Valhalla, the base as it appears. Uh, you can actually see a picture of Violet on my DeviantArt page. Um, I don't think most of the other characters have been posted, but there's a lot more to this than the novel can hold in. And similarly, there's a lot more in the novel than a movie could ever hold in, especially when it comes to the history of the world. That'll all be glazed over in a movie version in favor of lots and lots and lots of explosions and occasional boobs. (laughs) <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm a fan let me ask you really quick uh, what made you approach this uh, purely as like the inside it's, it's, it's pure text, pure copy uh, the story is enough to keep you interested and, and keep you involved but like uh, for example uh, Clive Barker with the Aberat he did, uh, inserted a ton of artwork, if you, if you have artwork what was it that made you keep it out of the book? Kind of an all-or-nothing view. I wanted to keep something because I still intend to make a movie out of this, and I want to keep a lot of it for that. The novel, if it had illustrations, it would be colossal. And if I had introduced just a few illustrations, some of the best drawings, I might do like a frontispiece or something more old-fashioned like that. But if it were illustrated in the way a conventional book is illustrated it would be very misrepresentative of what I've put into it. You can't really show... There, there is a graphic novel possibility of it but uh, for me alone it would take about 20 years to complete it. Oh wow! And in this case I just wanted to let the story function as a novel without having to inflict my own vision for it on the audience. If you'd be willing to read a selection of the novel, and then maybe give us what you, you know, sort of like the back cover briefing of what you would consider this book to be. I mean, we've sort of dived headfirst into this uh, fully imagined world, this uh, main character who's a a young female, um, very much... Uh, not fully matured, which is which is funny because I say not fully matured, but she's completely self-aware, like absolutely self-aware, and that may be for the reader's sake, um, and maybe not fully realized for her, but it, it it is this weird juxtaposition of 
She doesn't know how to function properly in a social environment, but she is fully aware of even the most obscure thoughts that she has about herself in the most horrific of situations, and being able to articulate it. So, I mean, what's the idea behind that? Um, the idea behind it is that there has to be something that makes this person worth reading about. Yeah. And in Violet's case, it's that she has the ability to snap into a much more useful portion of instinct than most people, where if some random person in the world saw something terrible happening, they might freeze up or mm. they might faint, which is certainly what too many women in sci-fi novels do, which pisses me off, and that might actually be one of the reasons I went with the female hero for this, is because, I mean, how many are there in sci-fi or fantasy? There's Xena, and that's about it. Um, His main character? Well, yeah. I mean, there's, uh, you know, the aliens. Uh, girl, um, uh, still, uh, Ripley is a constant victim. Um, she's yeah, proactive true. more in Aliens but she's more of a survivor. What I wanted to present with Violet is somebody who, when that horrible situation happens, instead of going limp, they become the best of themselves. Their brains start working much better. It's the mental equivalent of somebody being able to lift a car to get it off of their kid. Um, and though it may not do her too much good in the first chapter, it's a skill that she'll be able to use far better in the future. Yeah. It's well, it, it just serves a, her in, in Acme Carry for sure, which is the... Isn't that the, the place where she went for military training? Yeah. Um, early in the book, uh, she heads to a conventional military setting, and she finds that some of her strengths are welcome there, and some of her strengths are very much unwelcome there. <laughs> To the sometimes, point of being kicked out. Yeah, sometimes with hilarious or horrifically gruesome results. <laughs> I won't get into any of those, but... Yeah. This is ser uh, certainly a book that y you're going to want to digest uh, at a comfortable pace. You're not going to want to trudge through this with your kids screaming in the background. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is definitely... There's a lot of subtlety... Uh, to the dialogue, to the references, to the just nuances of the character. I think I added in an extra z there. But, like, there's a lot to this uh, that maybe deserves a second or a third read, I think. I would certainly recommend it myself. Um, <laughs> the book is... Not for selfish reasons. <laughs> yeah, um... Obviously, it's going to be my favorite book because I wrote it to be everything that I want to find in a book. Um, and to some degree, it's responsive to a lot of the books I've read. I think the way that this was written, to some extent at least, is I read something like Harry Potter and thought, well, that's great, but this should have happened. <laughs> or that's great, but it would have been so much cooler if they said this or did this. So I collected all of those things that I thought I could do better than J.K. Rowling and made my own book stitched together from them. So everything that I love to see in a book, um, action, quirky humor, uh, lots of explosions, just ungodly amounts of explosions. I think this <laughs> book, and if it is ever made into a movie, 
will make Michael Bay sob for the number of explosions that <laughs> I made instead of him. It's definitely very much action-oriented, but it's also something akin to a hard sci-fi novel that deals with the science disguised as a soft space opera-type sci-fi novel. It should be appreciable as just a dumb, fun action story, but if you care to look for things like intricate questions about quantum physics or sociopolitical goings-on that are trends now that might take over the world, that sort of thing, I've crammed it full of that for anybody who wants it. But again, it still should be enjoyable as people shooting each other. There are a lot of those in this book. Yeah, actually, I, I think one of um, one of the couple things that kept me going um, wholeheartedly outside of the violence was the attention to detail with um, political groups, with um, uh, uh, religion and, and culture in general. Um, it, it really is chock full. We, let's let, let's take a, a step back here. If you could read a selection of this, uh, yeah, here's a. One of the passages from somewhere in the middle of the book presented without too much context uh, <laughs> you read on its own. Through it all, she let him do his work, whimpered and winced as she thought she might have done half a year ago, back before injury training, back before acne carry, if Rothgar had done her in back on that day. Wolfgar tried to pull her right foot toward him. She kicked with it, not enough to hit him, but enough to free it for a moment. She used her toe to push at the pile of her severed fingers. She poked one of her middle fingers upward in an obscene gesture and gave a pained laugh. Wolfgar laughed, too. Keep it up. I like spirit in my prey. I'm enjoying this. He leaned close to her face. She thought he was about to kiss her. She recoiled. He could hack off any part he liked, but that would be going too far. It would be wrong. Incestuous, she thought. Then she became concerned that she thought it. How twisted is my mind if a kiss is worse than a loss of limbs? But she was right. It was wrong, deeply wrong. She was relieved when he simply went for her neck and bit down. I, I loved this part of the novel uh, for a couple reasons, and I'm going to do my damnedest here not to spoil anything. Um, you find out early on, I mean, first 10 pages, I, I should say the first 20 pages, um, that this girl, girl is special. You find uh, throughout the rest of the book her capacity of of learning tolerance and sort of a superhuman aspect. Uh, you know, really suited to what the book is about. Um, you know, a supernatural spy thriller. I say supernatural because it's sort of uh, th this level of awakening beyond regular you know herd mentality. At this scene is is sort of a culmination between what she will realize is the very beginning instigation of the book and her, what she hopes will be uh, a conclusion, some form of catharsis, or, or at least the, the catalyst of a catharsis that she's planning. This scene sees a character uh, who defies everything that the character has stood for. A, a, a Wolfgar, is it? Mm -hmm. uh, everything that you're told about this man is broken down in that very last sentence you read. Uh, and yet holds up with Violet 100% uh, on, on who she is, who she's alluded to at the very beginning of the novel, and who she's grown to at the very end. And that's very much a self-actualized, powerful warrior. 
and, and to see them have this interplay, like she almost sees him as family. For the idea of him kissing her is incestuous. Uh, just like the, the the best character in the novel and the worst character in the novel coming together, and the idea of any connection other than violent is pure incest. Uh, it, it's really fantastic, and it's delivered. Uh, very well. Uh, fantastic read. What if, if you could say who's your demographic for this book? I mean, wh- what what kind of uh, individual is is this strictly? You think for men? You think women can connect with the character? Don't tell any advertising people I said this, but <laughs> the demographic is myself. Um, <laughs> it was written to be the my favorite novel. It was written to be exactly what I would love reading about. So the demographic is, I guess. People like me, that's the most horrible thing you can say in terms of trying to promote it. What's interesting, though, is all of the people who I didn't expect to like it. My aunt loved the book. She is she's into, like, Thomas Kincaid, and I would assume she's into cheap, horrible romance novels. <laughs> somehow she liked this weird, ultra-violent future story. People who I expect to write it, to, to enjoy it, who enjoy satire or military sci-fi or any science fiction or any action, have all flipped for it. But even um, a couple people I've lent it to who very, very strongly disagree with my religious views mm-hmm. have still somehow enjoyed it, despite the fact that religion is one of the antagonists in the book. There are more villains in the book than just the one that Violet runs into. That's her personal villain, and if the book left you wanting more of the world it takes place in, the ending of this book is going to make you demand a sequel. Where can people go to pick up Valhalla? It's for sale on lulu.com as a PDF or a physical soft cover sci-fi novel it's also available on amazon kindle well it is always a pleasure talking with you thank you so much uh for the audience absolutely if you haven't yet pick up valhalla uh author ari bach thank you for joining me it's always a pleasure i actually do look greatly forward to the uh snail factory and hopefully it's uh compilation release Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. Certainly, everyone, go pick up Valhalla. Do not miss out on it. Uh, It's not expensive at all, so you have no excuse. Um, Pick it up. Support a a worthwhile artist uh, and writer. So bizarre. It's the bizarre of the bizarre. (laughs) So creepy. Ah! Okay, so Bizarre of the Bizarre this week, boxers that are liquid resistant. Now, it doesn't make sense, I know, and that's the doggone problem. Okay, so I go and buy some new boxers. This is something you do once, I don't know, maybe every two decades. <laughs> Guys are kind of like, well, we can always get one more good wear out of them. <laughs> like, like, what does that even mean, one good one more good wear out of them. So, unless it literally disintegrates from your body, 
you're probably going to put them on again in a pinch, <laughs> no matter what. Uh, anyway, so I go. I'm buying new boxers, and I'm not picky. I'm not like I, I am not one of those guys that goes and buys the individual boxers that are hanging from like like like. I had silk boxers once, and it was not a good thing. <laughs> anything silky, caressing my privates. Like rubbing up all up, it, it it's like constant attention down there. <laughs> Wearing silk boxers, I feel like there's only one time you would ever or should ever wear silk boxers, and that's foreplay. Like that's the only time you should be messing around with something like that because you don't want to be in the middle of class and suddenly you like lean over to grab a book out of your book bag and it's like a silk hand is rubbing against you, <laughs> like. <laughs> you don't need Viagra <laughs> if you're wearing silk boxers. <laughs> okay, so point being, uh, I just grab like cotton fabric boxers. I don't go to like the dollar store though, so I expect that the boxers that are supposed to be cotton e are going to be cotton, meaning absorbing. Now I've talked about this in the past before. When you're taking a leak, and you got to do that sort of after piss shake. It's like you know your penis is a lot like a straw. Like you put your okay, you don't do this, but let's say you did. You put your finger at the end of the straw uh, after it's sitting in your drink. You lift it up. The water stays in the straw. You let go of you move your finger from the end of the straw, and the water goes falling out. A lot like that. You take a leak. There's still some liquid inside the junk. Like it's it just happens. I don't know if there's like a reservoir that it just sits in, but no matter how good you shake, and you don't want to shake too good. You know what I mean? You don't want to be like walked in on during your your 55th shake, and you realize that you're no longer shaking. You're doing something entirely different at that point. <laughs> I mean, there's always going to be some leakage at some point, no matter what. I don't care who you are. You can be as careful as you want. And so when there is leakage, you want a boxer fabric. Okay, well, you may wear boxer briefs or briefs. You know, apply the fabric portion of this to those. That is going to be absorb... Uh, that is going to absorb that liquid, essentially. Uh, I bought these boxers, and they didn't absorb shit. <laughs> like... Like, to be fair, I wasn't having them try to absorb shit, but you get my point. So, I, I go take a leak, and I go to wash my hands, and then suddenly, I feel like I just poured water, even though it wasn't, it was like, a, you know, a tiny little drip, but it felt like a whole cup of water on my leg, because my boxers weren't absorbing that drop <laughs> at all. It was, and it was the most uncomfortable feeling. It was like I was wearing plastic instead of some fabric. Like, what the, do I, I don't understand, do I have to line my boxers now with paper towels on the off chance that I have a drop of piss <laughs> come out? And I know it sounds gross, but let's keep in mind that it's just literally sterile wastewater and it's not a big fucking deal and it's not like I pissed my pants. It's normally just regular drippage that's associated, not necessarily with the disease, because that also has drippings associated with it. <laughs> like, I have no STDs, let me say straight up. <laughs> but there is some leakage always. And it wasn't absorbing it. I just want absorption. It's like I have to now look at a package 
of boxers with the same eyes, I look at a package of toilet paper. <laughs> like, I have to look at it and say, okay, is this going to be absorbed soon? Is it absor- I can't even say the damn word. Is this going to absorb what I need it to absorb? Is it going to be soft? But not too soft. It needs to be resilient, <laughs> but not too resilient. It's just this crazy idea. And, and like, I'm still, you know, and, and here's the worst part of it all. No matter how ridiculous this sounds, no matter how frustrating it is for me, or any of you out there who have uh, experienced it as well, uh, I'm still wearing them. <laughs> I mean, not the same pair, granted, but I'm still wearing the boxers. So, you know, I'm just this, some crazy guy that doesn't mind pee on his leg, apparently. <laughs> like, it's just okay. <laughs> Alright, well, at the expense of looking like more of a jackass than I already have on this show... I'm going to end it there. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the SatanNet Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. You can also subscribe via iTunes by searching 9 cents. Don't forget to leave a rating and or comment if you do. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit radiofreesatan.com, an online streaming radio station. Once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell. And until next week, Hail Satan!